The time was wrong. Maggie Hope startled when the Ormolu clock on the fireplace's mantel struck the incorrect hour, metallic chimes ringing through the house's chilly, high-ceilinged library. Heart pounding, she snapped her head to look over at it. Gilt Gemini twins flanked its pearlized face, and the thin black hands that should have been set to one o'clock Paris time were instead moved to three o'clock, the hour in Berlin. The Nazis' first official act after the occupation of France had been to impose the Reich's time on the captured country. What, she wondered, would Albert Einstein think of the arbitrary positions of the hands? Hadn't he himself posited that time is only a relative construct? Of course, he never counted on the Nazis and their hubris, she thought. As a mathematics major at Wellesley College before the war, planning to pursue her doctorate at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Maggie had often speculated about such things, time and space and numbers. Back then, her greatest ambition had been to become a professor of mathematics at one of the Seven Sisters Colleges. But she'd inherited her grandmother's house in London in 1937 and stayed on, even as war broke out, to work as a typist for the new Prime Minister, Winston Churchill. After she solved a mystery regarding an IRA bomb plot, Peter Frayne, head of MI5, asked her if she spoke fluent German and French, and if she'd be willing to do more for her adopted country. She'd said yes, without realising exactly what that would entail. Now, almost two years later, in June 1942, Maggie Hope was a British officer with the rank of Major. Officially, she belonged to the Auxiliary Territorial Service, the all-female service known as the ATS, as well as the one with the worst uniforms. But that was only a cover. In fact, she worked for a secret organisation, the Special Operations Executive, responsible for deception and sabotage behind enemy lines. Set Europe ablaze, Prime Minister Churchill had thundered when he created the unit, and across the continent, his spies were doing their bit. At 27, Maggie was one of SOE's more senior agents, although back at headquarters at Baker Street, her opinions and ideas were mostly ignored. Before coming to France as an undercover agent, she'd never understood Salvador Dali's painting The Persistence of Memory. But now, after looking up endlessly at the gilt clock, she understood its warped imagery of time all too well. She was in occupied territory, waiting for forged identity papers, and if she were found out, she would be tortured by the Gestapo, then hanged as a spy. Maggie had been in Paris for three months, and every minute of every day since she had arrived, she'd been tracking shadows from the corners of her eyes, flinching at strange noises, and swallowing her meagre meals with the constant threat of discovery and capture lodged in her throat. Worry was her daily diet, ever since she'd left London for Paris on a two-pronged mission, to discover the truth about what had happened to her half-sister, Elise Hess, a German resistance fighter in hiding, as well as her fellow SOE agent, Erica Calvert. Staring at the clock chiming the hour was nothing new. In her ever-vigilant state, she discovered the building had its own music. Squeaking parquet floorboards, the rattle of window panes in the wind, and the melody created by each person who entered. Maggie had developed a well-tuned ear for the songs of the structure, the pelt of raindrops against the glass, the creak of the foundation settling and resettling, the scuttle of rats in the walls. The strain of always listening was slowly driving her mad. 
To battle the tension, she kept the wireless on at a low volume, the music and conversation combating loneliness. Maggie was staying, at least for the moment, in a three-storey 19th-century hôtel particulier in the first arrondissement, between the Louvre and Les Halles. It was the former residence of a princess who'd left the city in the early thirties. A film actress had bought the townhouse, then fled before the invasion. In the spring of 1941, the dilapidated structure was purchased by Dr. Maurice Charcot and his twin sister, Agathe, to use as both a physician's office and private residence. In the year the Chacots had owned the building, they'd done little cleaning and repair, except for the doctor's office, which was ordered and tidy, and an adjoining small living space for the two of them. The rest of the manse, a once elegant house with six bedrooms, was crammed with what the former occupants had abandoned. Armoires stuffed with moth-eaten costumes, hats and shoes. A staggering disarray of broken furniture, grimy taxidermy, and stacks of mildewed books, encyclopedias, dictionaries, Bibles, fairy tales, were piled on the floor. Stagheads, their glass eyes blinded by dust, watched over rooms overflowing with unstrung chandeliers, broken Chinese bamboo birdcages, and murky oil paintings. An unravelling Aubusson tapestry of a captured unicorn moulded on one wall, while chipped marble statues of St. Francis of Assisi with upraised palms holding doves leaned against another in awkward positions. It was as if the house, like time, like Paris, like France itself, was sleeping under some malevolent spell.